Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. As we discussed on last week's podcast, Democrats now have a narrow majority in the Senate, meaning President-elect Joe Biden will have a much easier time forming his cabinet. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, Marcy, John, and Chris discuss Biden's nominations for key positions so far, including Secretary of Health and Human Services, Attorney General, Secretary of Labor, and Secretary of Treasury. Before we start talking about the specific nominees, can you briefly explain why who holds these positions is so important to NAHU? Sure, Dan. So these positions are all held by nominees of the president that are then confirmed by the Senate. And they're important because oftentimes it's the secretaries of these agencies that really mold and form the policies and the rules and regulations that go along with legislation once it's passed. So even though Joe Biden will be the president and will be directing his nominees in these different areas, He's surrounding himself with different policy experts in different areas that will hold these positions and will really take the lead. So as much as President Biden may have some pieces on his platform from all of these different agencies that they'll be looking at, these nominees will really be leading the charge and directing some nominees that will serve below them, but also the career staff that have been at these agencies to be able to develop more policy proposals that we then will work on. So for us, the head of these agencies is really instrumental. And as soon as we get those nominees confirmed, we'll be reaching out for appointments to make sure that they know who NEHU is, that they know what you all as agents and brokers do, and how you impact the health insurance market and and employers as well. Because as much as we have great relationships with the career staff at each of the agencies, they are not going to be the driving force behind the proposals. It will be these nominees that are confirmed by the Senate. It really marks a philosophical shift in thinking from the Trump era where anything related to the ACA was avoided in terms of making improvements. It'll be a a total shift in philosophy in terms of the direction. And then one of the things we'll talk about is, as we examine each of the, the people who will be heading these departments and looking at their backgrounds, is where do they come from? and What is their philosophical bent and just how far might they go? Between the pandemic and the health policy priorities of the Democratic Party, Biden's pick for HHS secretary is absolutely vital. But before we get to that, on the legal side, Biden's choice for Attorney General Merrick Garland could have implications for health policy in the next four years. Can you talk a little bit about Garland and what we may expect from the Department of Justice if he is confirmed? Sure. So most of Garland's record is on civil liberties and civil rights. This is where he has kind of made a name for himself. He is more progressive than we've seen in the past, especially within the past four years. 
for the Attorney General of the United States. This has also gotten a lot of news in regards to how Garland would be confirmed by the Senate. And many outlets have pointed out that Garland was not named by Biden until after we got the Senate results from Georgia, meaning that it was clear that the Republicans didn't have that majority and that McConnell wouldn't be leading the charge in confirming the nominees. It was thought that Garland would not be confirmed by the Senate if McConnell was the majority leader because McConnell held back in putting forth Garland's nomination by President Obama to take Antony Scalia's seat on the Supreme Court, which was then filled by President Trump's nominee, Gorsuch. So some view this nomination of Garland as a way of Biden giving him a consolation prize to not being named to the Supreme Court and instead now being the Attorney General of the U.S. However, Garland is leaving a very high position on the federal district court, which decides many cases before it gets to the Supreme Court. So he still has a very powerful position where he is and then would be moving into attorney general. I don't think we're going to see a lot that is going to hinge on healthcare based on Garland. I think much of that on the the legal side will go down to what we'll see with some legal gymnastics, as I like to call it, by HHS Secretary Becerra and the Supreme Court with their ruling on California v. Texas later this summer. In some ways, I expect the attorney general to be less engaged in healthcare than the past four years. Really, the attorney general under the Trump administration has been the Trump administration's top lawyer. And so has been constantly engaged in a more aggressive pursuit. I think Merrick Garland, particularly being a judge, I think we're going to find more reserved. My main concerns with him actually is because of his experience as a judge, does he actually have the capabilities to manage such a large department that he'll have under him? And since he does have that experience on the court, court system, you have a few clerks, it's a much more smaller institution to try to manage. And so it will be interesting to see how he moves into a role that really does require a certain amount of management skills. This is why you see people like Bill Barr and others already had quite a bit of experience in managing large departments and groups of people in the past. Though, of course, one of the agencies that NAHU interacts with on a regular basis is the Department of Labor. And Boston Mayor Martin Walsh has been tapped for that position. What do we expect there? Marty Walsh, who's the mayor of Boston, has a strong labor background, particularly in organized labor. He comes out of the union, the laborers. And at one point, he ran the Boston building trades. So he had the support of a lot of the establishment unions, the carpenters, the laborers, the other sort of heavily construction unions. He did not have the backing of the more progressive unions, the SEIU, the CWAs and others. So I think the advantage we will have, particularly because of that building trades background, All the building trades unions have insurance plans that they run, and they have insurance plans that are very similar to a self-insurance for a a large business. And so it's part of the reason why NHU teams up so often with unions like the carpenters, like the laborers and others to work on things from the Cadillac tax to COVID response and really the overall employer-based healthcare system because they are part of the employer-based healthcare system. So the advantage we will have with Marty Walsh, because he ran the Boston Building Trades, is he understands running that health insurance plan for the members of the building trades within the city of Boston. And so 
at least our main advantage there will be not having to explain to him really the employer-based system the way that we have had to explain with other incoming labor secretaries who have experience in other topics related to labor, OSHA, other areas that we do not dive in. So we should be able to have a higher level conversation than we necessarily would have had in the past. Yeah, I think those are very positive attributes. I am a little concerned about his desire to increase the number of OSHA inspectors in this time of COVID. I think this liability issue still hangs over employers that hasn't been resolved. And I think this could make employers somewhat skittish, although um, it could be wise to set up a framework for how employers are to respond to COVID-related workplace issues. But, you know, how far will that go? I think that that remains to be seen, but he's seen as being very strong on health and safety issues. And I think we'll see Walsh possibly bring a more dynamic conversation to the table about what it means to be an employee in the 21st century. During his time as mayor of Boston, he brought this up with the gig economy and specifically looking at what the structure is for Uber and Lyft drivers and not just their structure as gig economy employees, but also their position and needing to give back to the economy to try to support some businesses that they put out of business, like the taxi drivers. So especially when we think of that gig economy, for me, it looks to that employee that has flexible hours that may not be a full-time employee or may have variable hours and how that will impact employers that are providing insurance coverage. As Chris pointed out, Walsh understands that concept of employers providing employer-sponsored coverage. But here, when we're looking at how employees are working differently in the market, and especially with the impact of COVID, I think he is really going to bring this to the forefront of conversations. He's also very supportive of increasing the minimum wage. I think this will come into account when we look at what it means to be a full-time employee, how many hours that counts towards, and when you're equating that to how much someone is making, and if they're not getting to the 40 hours, are they able to still be able to afford insurance on their hourly wage? And will that differ under an increase in the minimum wage? So a lot of different aspects that are going to trickle down and impact our market. In the Department of Labor, like all the departments too, we're still going to be waiting for the appointments below them. In the Department of Labor, particularly important to NHU, is the Employee Benefit Security Administration. And so we're going to be waiting also to see that appointment because that's often, when we go to the Department of Labor, we're usually not actually meeting with the Secretary of Labor. But we will often meet with the head of the Employee Benefits Security Administration, who will be involved in writing all the regs from the Department of Labor that affect health insurance for employers and and that system. So again, this is one of those areas that we're going to be looking for the next round of political appointees that I think will have a huge impact on this industry. In addition to the DOL, NAHU frequently works with the IRS and Treasury Department. Biden recently announced that his pick for Treasury Secretary is former Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen. This is certainly an interesting choice. What does NAHU expect from her if she is confirmed? So I think that the pick is one of steadiness. That's what I think of, at least when I think of her. 
this isn't her first trip to Washington. You know, she knows how Washington works. She understands the department. I think it's a wise pick in that I think it will provide stability and continuity. You know, I do have concern that she does not have a great background in healthcare and insurance. One of the things I think with Treasury that we are looking forward to is you can create political appointed positions that don't necessarily have to exist forever. And one of the things that did exist in the Obama administration was an assistant secretary for basically employee benefits. So the health insurance and also the 401k side of things. Under the Trump administration, they chose not to have that. And so it did make it more difficult for us to go into Treasury and talk to somebody about health insurance and know that it was going to be in their jurisdiction to do something about it. The Biden administration has seemed inclined to bring back that position. And so I'm hopeful that we'll have somebody in there who has a strong background in health insurance, particularly, uh, it would be nice to have the 401k side too, but a strong background in health insurance that we can then work with, again, to aggressively push this agenda. So while I personally don't think Secretary Yellen has a whole lot of experience in healthcare, I am hopeful that the department will be organized in such a way that we will have somebody that we can work with and will understand health insurance and the implications from that tax side of things. The rulemaking for surprise billing. I mean, these are tri-agency efforts. And so having someone there with that skill set will be important. And one item for her background that stands out to me is her support of Dodd-Frank. And she has been on the record before saying that it is flawed, but that it does provide some measure of security and that a revamping of the Dodd-Frank rules needs to go into place to possibly be able to protect consumers from the peripheral industries that touch on some investments. And so to me, it makes me a little nervous. We might see a reintroduction of the fiduciary rule, which would treat agents and brokers the same as a financial fiduciary when we're looking at health savings accounts and viewing those as investment portfolios. So that's one piece that's on my radar, but it is not something that she has said is on her platform. That's just me kind of reading the tea leaves through her support of Dodd-Frank. Thanks for tuning in to the Healthcare Happy Hour. As you can tell, it's more important than ever for agents and brokers to have their voices heard, meaning it is more important than ever to attend NAHU's annual capital conference. This year, it will be held virtually February 22nd to 24th. But don't worry, we anticipate lobbying in this virtual format to be just as engaging and effective as it has been in previous years. To register, simply go to NAHU.org and you'll find instructions right on the front page. So finally, let's talk about the Department of Health and Human Services. As we mentioned earlier, Biden has tapped California Attorney General Xavier Becerra for this role. What do you believe the Department of Health and Human Services would look like under him? Well, I think he's clearly been appointed for this position from his experience over the past several years, one of which being a member of Congress from California and supporting the ACA as it was going through the legislative process and being a strong supporter in reason why it ended up passing during the Obama administration. And then he moved on to become the California Attorney General 
actually taking the place of now Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. So with his background there and being Attorney General of California, he also led the charge recently and ongoing, really, with the California v. Texas lawsuit in the Supreme Court challenging the constitutionality of the individual mandate and whether it can be severed from the ACA. I think that Biden chose Becerra because of this, because we know we're going to have this Supreme Court ruling sometime this summer. And having a secretary at HHS that understands the legal ramifications of what this decision could bring is putting the Department of Health and Human Services in a position where they can be a little proactive and, like I said, creative and their responses to rulemaking around an opinion from the Supreme Court, instead of being caught having to play catch up and understanding the possibilities of what they can do to try to preserve the ACA around any type of opinion we'll get this summer. Yeah, this was the pick that was the most surprising to me out of the three departments that we work closely with. I would have thought somebody like the governor of Rhode Island, Gina Rolano, would have gotten the position, uh, although she's now ended up at the Department of Commerce. Typically, governors are high on the list. If you look at past HHS secretaries, half of them have been governors. And I don't think that's an accident because of their having to run a rather large agency. HHS is one of the largest in the government. And so that's similar to running a state. And they also have experience with Medicaid programs and all the public health that a state has to deal with. So his pick was definitely a little more outside the box. I definitely think in many ways he is a lawyer first. And so it will be the first time that a true lawyer will be running HHS. Even in his time in Congress, his interest was most in a lot of those very legal judicial matters. NAH, you worked with him while he was in Congress heavily on Medicare Advantage. That was tended to be the area that we had the best relationship with him on really was those senior issues and how to get people into MA and make sure the program is working best for our seniors. So we do have that existing relationship with him there. During his time as Attorney General of California, I think it's really interesting what he did with the hospitals and how he was very concerned about the hospital consolidation, which had been really affecting the California market. Because when all the hospitals consolidated, insurance carriers, self-employers and others really lost their leverage to negotiate rates in those hospitals. And he did a lot to try to break up those hospitals in California. And I think it will be interesting to see if he continues that because he is so well known for that in California. I think, you know, that we've seen so much consolidation in the health industry, particularly when we look at physicians and hospitals and often their practices merging into one. If we're looking at ways of really trying to drive down the cost of healthcare, having the hospitals and the doctors all consolidated has really killed our leverage to drive down healthcare costs. So we might have a partner here on trying to drive down those healthcare costs with consolidation. So I think I think it makes him kind of an outside the box pick, but an interesting one that we have a lot of potential to work with on different priorities of ours. Again, and I hate to bring up surprise billing, but the regulations will be heavily driven by HHS. And so he'll understand it from a a lawyer's perspective about, you know, what various actions might mean and its implications and outcomes and lowering costs and so forth. I think that his experience on the Ways and Means Committee is huge. And having relationships on the Hill is always a good thing. And so I agree with Chris, it's a very interesting pick. 
and look forward to working with him. As we discussed on last week's episode, a public option may not pass Congress, but the ACA allows states to apply for 1332 innovation waivers to make changes to their state marketplace. Is it possible for a state to implement a public option this way? And do you think Secretary Becerra would approve such a request? So, yes, it's possible. And Washington State actually applied for a 1332 waiver to set up the program that they have now that is phasing in a public option onto their exchange. To qualify for a 1332 waiver, states have to prove that the plan that they're proposing will cover about as many people as are covered under their grant status and with the exchanges, that the coverage will be the same or about as same as the qualified health plans that are offered to them now, and that it will be about the same cost to the consumer and will also not increase the federal deficit, that it won't cost the federal government more money. So with the public options that if we get down to it and looking at state proposals, that's really where we start to see some barriers is with that cost. Many states are not able to put these together because of the great cost it will cause the state. And since they aren't able to go to the federal government for more money, that could be a barrier to having them be approved. But if we're looking just at the premise of a public option, I don't think that's something that Becerra will not approve through a 1332 waiver just because it's a public option proposal. It's going to come down to all of those other details. It's also important to point out that Becerra is from California, and they have been trying to put forward some type of public option proposal for several years. Now they have started calling it unified financing. So California is still looking at doing this. And as Attorney General, Becerra is not in a vacuum where he's unaware of this. But once again, one of the main barriers to California being able to move forward with this is their budget. The bill scored, and when we say scoring, it means how much it would cost to go into place, more than 50% of the California state budget. And so in order to spend that much amount of money, the California legislature would have to put this to a vote from the citizens. It would have to change their constitution. They would have a lot of hurdles to get through to be able to do this. Becerra is aware of this. He knows how complicated this is. And so I don't think he's going to sign off on 1332 waivers for public options with you know, a hope and a prayer that it's going to work out. But he's really going to be looking at the details of all of this. Another good connection, knowing that Becerra is from California, is their Covered California State Exchange. And I'm, I'm not holding it up as the, the golden example of exchanges. But I am pointing out that it has a great relationship with agents and brokers. The head of Covered California, Peter Lee, works with NEHU on a number of different platforms. But one of the things that he does do is also support agents and brokers in California and ensure that they are paid a commission on Covered California plans. So it's realistic to say that Becerra is also aware of the success of Covered California and would be looking to Peter Lee and others to provide input on some of the structural aspects, possibly of proposals that are coming from different states on public options, and whether or not they are, one, going to be able to fit within those guardrails that I mentioned at the start, 
And two, being able to fit within a realistic budget position for the states. It is now time for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. What are we toasting to this week? This week, we're toasting to the Department of Defense, the National Guard, all of those police units close to D.C. that have been called up and have come to the Capitol, some of them sleeping on the floor in the Capitol building to keep our lawmakers safe, our citizens safe, and to continue the democracy that this country was founded on. Cheers! Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.